Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Resonant Reels, where we talk about movies and cinema through an audio lens and all that fun stuff, because we are your favorite podcast hosts. I'm Adam. And I'm Chandler. That was amazing. We're not going to talk about that. That was like take two or three or anything. At all. That was like, that went so well the first time. Yeah. You didn't forget what your name was or anything. It's fine. We're not tired. No. Why would I ever think that I was you? Uh, It's so weird. Anyways, it's great to be back. Long time no see, totally, right? We're not recording these back-to-back or anything. That's wild. No, we plan out things so well and our schedules always line up. Anyways, so we're diving in today with some go-to Halloween movies, you know? Just to get lighter from last episode of Stephen King, which, you know, goes deep and can't imagine how how long it is. So uh, this week, I chose the classic Scream from 1996. And I picked Beetlejuice from 1988. Yeah, I kind of found a weird through line, but like maybe it's like not that common. I don't know. It's It might be like uh, stretching it a little bit, grasping for straws here. But like these movies have people who have received a lot, a lot of uh, flack and controversy recently. You notice that? Ooh, actually, you're not wrong. Specifically out of like Alec Baldwin and like arguably Drew Barrymore, but that's like a little less wishy-washy with. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, what do you want to talk about first? I went first last time, so let's let's kick it off with Scream. I love Scream so much. It's 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 weird that now it's a classic. Like I grew up watching this movie and I loved it because to me it reinvented slasher films. Arguably a lot of people thought that too when it first came out. It knew its audience and culture, and I think a lot has to be said about the script that was written. Kevin Williamson, I think, is is the writer. He understood the current contemporary time of the 90s and audiences and culture a lot that, like, we're all very smart audience members when it comes to watching horror movies and played a lot on those both meta-ness, but also just, like, tropiness and, like, it has a lot of homage to like the original classics of the slasher genre of like Halloween and Friday the 13th and stuff like that, while also being its own unique thing. And I love that aspect of it. I mean, first thing first, we'll just talk about the opening sequence. In in all the marketing materials, everyone besides, you know, the people working on the production thought Drew Barrymore was going to be the leading lady. She was Sydney Prescott, right? And then to find out that, like, she gets killed in the first 15 minutes. Done. No one is safe. Like, this is... Drew Barrymore is, like, super mega famous in the 90s at this point. Like, everyone loves her. She's, you know, skyrocketing in stardom. But she's like, no, I don't want to be Sydney. There's either her or Wes or someone. The story keeps changing you know, with everyone who is interviewed, but she wants to be the first girl that gets killed in the opening sequence, which is amazing and great. And like, it's just, it takes so much confidence and balls to like, we're just going to kill off America's sweetheart. Yeah, honestly, like, so my confession is that I saw this movie for the first time um, which you mentioned in our last episode, actually, you're like, Scream is like the perfect movie to like turn on when people are having a party. Like, don't turn on some dark thriller. That is exactly how I watched this movie for the first time was I was at some party and Scream was just on kind of in the background. And 
it was one of those nights where I was like very happy to like be out and like hanging out with people, but I was just feeling very like I'm gonna be a part of the group that's just watching what's on the TV, not really like socializing. I had the what I'll say the misfortune. I guess, but I saw the last 40 minutes of the movie and that was it. And so this was actually my first time getting to watch it all the way through from the beginning. And I had no idea that Drew Barrymore was even in this film because obviously she's only in the first 15 minutes of the movie. And I started like double guessing everything I thought I knew about this film. I was like, wait, Drew Barrymore's in this movie? I was like, (laughs) what? I don't remember that at all. And then she got murdered. And I was like, oh, I see. I see why I didn't know that information. (laughs) That's amazing. So you just have like the whole final act, which is everything at Stu's house that you've previously seen. That is um, fascinating. Yep. That's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. So so we start... And like th- this movie, it gets referenced all the time now. I mean, it's 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 got a bunch of sequels now, and I I've, I've been an avid fan of Scream. I'm mixed with the newer trilogy that's currently in production right now. But anyways, this movie is the whole it invents the character of Ghostface, which is actually a mask that they found when they were sight scouting, and it was just in a room and Wes or someone on the production team was like, Wes, check this out. And he was like, that's amazing. Who made this? Like, we got to like make our own because we got to change it because we don't own it because it's the old Hollywood mentality of like, you got to make it yourself or you're going to get sued to oblivion. But they end up finding out who actually made it and Wes shot scenes with the mask that they found because all the other ones that the prop department made he didn't like and so he just like was like fuck it i'm just gonna use that mask and ask for forgiveness later and deal with it because wes is also wes craven at this point has not had a lot of successes in movies because he's busy trying to get out of the nightmare on elm street and do other movies but like they're not getting as good reception and stuff like that i'm thinking of uh it's like an eddie murphy vampire movie he did that was like box office failure and stuff like that so he's just like uh I'll, I'll be on this movie and he's just like they're paying me a lot i'll figure it out kind of thing and hopefully i don't get yelled at too much <laughs> which is hilarious uh but luckily after like shooting this first scene and using the the actual mask they got in contact with the mom and pop shop that made this mask and the owner he was just like didn't realize what he had in the moment he's just like i just want you to make sure in the credits you have the name of our store under like our parent company and a hundred bucks that's it wow luckily someone uh in the parent company trademarked the name ghostface and ghostface mask and like redid the patent on that mask and tied the name ghostface to it so like they're making bank from it this this synopsis is just going to be me going off on tangents because I've seen this movie so many times and it's just great. But anyways, the movie starts. Drew Barrymore's you know getting some popcorn ready. It's old school popcorn. You put it on the stove and it like pops up on in a pan on the stove kind of thing. No microwaves, man. This is the nineties. Microwaves aren't at that trustworthy or something. I don't know. <laughs> and then she gets a phone call and it's this like weird voice. 
And she's like, oh, it's a wrong number. Hangs up kind of thing. And this is before caller ID, you young folk. This is like home phone line, landline kind of thing. It is a wireless landline, but like there's no cell phones really. Like cell phones are a rare breed and not many people have it because it costs too damn much. But then the guy calls back and he's really creepy because it's really creepy almost arguably seductive voice, but you know, that's opinion. I would agree with that opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Gets more and more creepy because he wants to play a game and she gets creeped out because things slip, whether it's intentional or mistakes of like, he's watching her and stuff like that, like really creepy stalkery stuff. And then this guy over the phone gets really angry, which we learned is this ghost face killer that we just call ghost face. Cause I think it's never explicitly named Ghostface in this movie, and I don't remember which of the sequels he finally gets the name Ghostface, but he's never called Ghostface. It's just Killers, or Killer. We think it's one killer. Sorry. Spoiler. Big twist in the end. It's two killers. Might as well get that out in the first few minutes. You know, it's... <laughs> Her her boyfriend, oh, what the hell is his name? It's like Steve. Such a, Steve. Her boyfriend, Steve, is tied up on the porch because she was like, no, my big boyfriend is a football player, a quarterback. He's going to come over here and kick your ass. And he's like, do you mean Steve? Turn on the porch lights. This movie is so good at like being so tropey, but so terrifying at the same time. It's so good because it's just a fun Scary ride. I was watching it with my girlfriend and she was like, is this movie supposed to be like funny? And I was like, I was like, here's my thing. I was like, this is a movie that is absolutely poking fun at the tropes. And I was like, and at the same time is like, it's taking itself seriously in that it is a horror film but it's not taking the tropes seriously. And so I was like, so that's why there were there are moments where it is like you're kind of laughing along because you're like, yeah, that's that's every other horror movie you've ever seen that is also in that thing and they're going to tell you point blank. So yeah, I loved I loved that. And that's all Kevin Williamson and his amazing script because it's like they didn't change like they changed 10% of the script kind of thing. Initially, when like trying to sell the script off to a studio to make it, like he had to do edits because it got too gory and stuff. But then when Wes Craven was hired on, Wes Craven re-put that shit back in because he's like, no, it's not scary enough. And it's just like... Oh, nice. It's it's great that like these two people were able to work together who had a such a I mean Wes has the understanding from creating one of the great legends of Freddy Krueger from Nightmare on Elm Street of what horror is but in a dream haunting sense but understands the genre intimately who's working with Kevin Williamson who misses the greatness of the horror he watched as a kid and wanted to make something that was very akin to it and was a homage, but also something unique and groundbreaking in and of itself. And I think that's it. Scream is all of that and more. And it's brilliant in that sense. This phone call is the classic stereotypical thing. Play a game. It's trivia and horror movies. She gets the first question right because it's who's the killer in Halloween. It's Mike Myers, Michael Myers. But then she fucks up the Friday the 13th trivia that everyone seems to fuck up, where it's like, in Friday the 13th, who's the killer? And everyone thinks it's Jason Voorhees. And it's like, no, it's his mom in the first movie. Everyone forgets it's his damn mom. She's crazy. 
So Todd, or sorry, Steve dies. I don't know why I have Todd stuck in my head. No, Steve dies, gets mutilated, like buckets of blood everywhere in this movie. And it's very apparent in the final act. And there's a lot of behind the scenes stories about that. So then uh, Drew Barrymore's character, which I don't remember her name, just she's Drew Barrymore, you know, honestly. Adam's looking it up to help me out here. I am. I've got you. Drew Barrymore is Casey. Casey. I, th- I thought it was Casey. It was on the tip of my tongue. Just wasn't confident. She She's trying to get out because Killer breaks into the house and is trying to hunt her down. She's trying to run. She can't call the police because she's actively on an open line with the killer. A lot of stupid kind of, but like it's intense enough where it's more realistic of kind of what you would do and less of the tropey like, oh, she's a dumb bimbo, which is a lot, a lot of dialogue on that throughout the movie of like people making stupid choices and stuff like that in horror movies. And this feels more real. I would agree with that. It didn't. Yeah, it didn't feel like forced. And also like, yeah, when it, they did a good job at, at communicating the stakes like I didn't, I, I understood why she was staying on the phone and not hanging up to call the police because it, it was, it felt safer to be on the phone with the killer because there's a weird sense of like, I know, okay, I can like figure this out versus if she were to hang up, she's like blind. But she ends up trying to escape and like, you think she's about to do it because like she gets in a brawl and like her parents are just getting home. But like throughout the brawl, she gets like, severely choked and she can't talk she's like lost her voice and like it is so heart-wrenching that like she's trying to call for her mom but no sound comes out of her mouth and then she just gets brutally stabbed and torn open and then hung in a tree for her parents to find all the meanwhile like the parents like walk in see the mess panic because they don't know what's going on and we don't we're, we're hoping they find her in time kind of thing because we don't know she's already been like hung on a tree. And then the mother picks up the phone to try and call 911 and she hears her daughter dying. And like the detail. That's what fucked me up. That's what got me in literally the first 10, 15 minutes and hearing the parents hearing her dying as she's being dragged through the forest was horrific. It's so creative. And so well done. And and that's just the first 15 minutes of the movie. Fun fact, the composer, Marco Beltrami, this was his first film score. He was a big DJ or something kind of thing, like a bunch of people in the 90s taking samples of stuff and you know working clubs and stuff like that. So someone sent Wes some of those samples and kind of like, you know, like a mixed CD kind of thing. And... Wes Craven was like, okay, here's the first scene. Give me a composition of it in a week. And that was like Wes's test to see if he liked him as a composer. It was just throw him in the fire and make it work. And like, that's what we get in the movie too. And it's just like a perfect fit. And then he went on to compose the next two movies of the Wes Craven trilogy, which is really great. So it's very consistent. And then we we cut to, you know, good old Sidney Prescott being a teenager in her room, not knowing the horrors that have been going on the night. And we're like, oh, okay, we just had a murder. And now we're just with this teenage girl in her bedroom. Cool. With a boyfriend just sneaking in seconds later. Good old Billy Loomis, which is a reference to Halloween. Let's go with the references. Oh, man. 
Nice. Yeah, there's a lot of references to Halloween because like they even they're even watching it at Stu's house because it's uh, you know Jamie Lee Curtis, the the OG and end all be all scream queen that she is, badass. But yeah, we got to uh, you know good old teenage nonsense and dad being like, I heard someone, and then the next day everyone's like, what's going on? There's a bunch of news, and it's like very odd that this small town has like a bunch of news circulating, but we learned that like a year ago, Sydney's mother was brutally murdered. And and it starts this very interesting thing of all of these kids, and and this speaks more of like the trilogy of films, because um, Kevin Williamson, when he wrote this script for Scream 1 in a weekend, while listening to only the Halloween soundtrack, by the way, he also did an outline for the next two movies. So he kind of had this trilogy idea in mind, and he was just lucky enough that like it got picked up because it was a fucking good movie idea. So yeah, we learn that this starts this theme of these kids dealing with the sins of their parents. This is kind of like a little underlying thing of like, oh, I have to deal with the baggage of my parents being awful adults but like unaware of it like no knowledge of these things and being misled through it all because about almost a year ago to the day uh, Sydney's mother was brutally murdered and a man was convicted and is on trial for the death penalty but then it becomes questioning if he's you know the real killer or not because these killers become apparent to Sydney that they knew her mother really well and it questions Sydney if she caught the right man or not but like it's also like she doesn't know her own mother because uh, there's a lot of things being said that her mother for for lack of a better word because it's what's said in the movie a lot was a, was the town slut and was going around sleeping with a lot of men and parents men parents fathers that's the word married men <laughs> fathers <laughs> yeah fathers there you go that's we the got word there <laughs> We quickly learn, and I think it's, like, really well done, the relationships between characters. Like, you just kind of, like, get it immediately, and you don't have to, like, dig super deep. And it's just, like, you, you're you just as confused as Sydney Prescott is throughout the movie. Like, you, you really relate with her, and that's really nice. But we meet Gail Weathers, who's Courtney Cox, you know, Monica from Friends. Who knew we're going to get such talent? Which also shout out that David Arquette is also in this movie. Funny thing. It's kind of weird in interviews because I was watching some documentaries doing research for this. David Arquette was a little stalkery during production of this movie because he's a little obsessed with... Courtney Cox. Well, his stalking worked at least for a short period of time before they got divorced, so... (laughs) Yeah, because we have David Arquette as good old Dewey, sweet summer child Dewey. Oh, bless his heart. Deputy Dewey now. Uh. <laughs> There's so many good one-liners in this movie, so many good quotes. It's so good. But we learned that like Gail Weathers has been profiting profiting off of Sydney's mother's murder and wrote a book saying that Sydney convicted the wrong man, been very successful with sales. And so there's this really bad tumultuous relationship because she feels used, of course, understandably for, you know, fame and money. Because Gail Weathers throughout this movie, until she's very 
redeeming at the end is like, I'm going to stop at nothing to get my story because I need to be the one to get the story because I got to make sure I hold on to fame and stuff. But yeah, they're at school and all these news people are around and the police are interviewing every student one by one about these murders to see who's got connection to who kind of thing. And then that evening, Sydney's dad has gone off to a conference for for toys or something like that. So she's home alone. So she wants to go stay with her friend uh, Tatum, played by Rose McGowan. Of course, Sydney Prescott's played by Nev Campbell, brilliant, brilliant actress. She she does really well of being kind of like a tomboy, but like she is just like this all around American girl who's just fucking tough as nails and like real. Well, when Gail even confronts Sydney. And tensions get too high. Sydney decks her in the face, which I know is like, it's like later. It was just epic. I was like, damn, she threw a punch. To the point, like, it was bruised and she had to get ice for it later to help it. Like, it was like. You could see knuckles. It was dope. But yeah, so they go home and then Sydney gets visited by the killer because currently we think it's only one killer, calls on the phone. She thinks it's Randy because Randy is this obsessed horror geek man of my heart who's obsessed with horror movies and the tropes and it's just like stop stop being stupid and the police should be doing this and they're not he's like sassy know-it-all but he's like not wrong at the same time good old randy so she thinks it's randy on the phone from the video store because he works at the video store of course but turns out it's not him and she gets in a fight with ghostface makes it out but is like rescued by billy who who is her boyfriend by the way. I don't know if we made that clear earlier. We did now. But when Billy's consoling her after the killer runs away, a cell phone drops from his pocket and it's like a big, <gasps> whoa moment, you know? It, it was a big, uh, oh no, like panic moment. So Sydney thinks he might be the killer kind of thing. And it gets all very confusing. And like seeing it like the for the first time, it keeps you guessing of who the killer is. And that's very intentional. But like, it's hard, like after you know and you rewatch it, that, like, you can't have that spark again. Yeah, it was also really interesting, which I'll mention the key moments that I wrote down, but knowing what I knew from the last 40 minutes and then watching from the beginning and picking up on things that otherwise would have completely flown by me that, like, I wouldn't have even thought truly anything about. But I was, like, looking for things, so I was able to find some stuff. I just can't get away from just, like how aware the movie is throughout because like they make references of like hopping back when billy first broke in at the beginning of the movie to sydney's room kind of thing he was watching the exorcist on public television so they you know edited all the uh overly graphic parts or whatever so it can air on television and airwaves and he has this whole conversation because it got him thinking about is our relationship made for tv and it's like so dumb but so brilliant at the same time and sydney goes like maybe it could be pg-13 or they make out and it's like over the clothes stuff and then like as he's leaving she's like maybe it could be pg-13 and like stereotypically pg-13-esque she flashes him but we don't get to see it as the audience it's so good but yeah so so billy's kind of been arrested and they they're keeping him overnight until they get phone records from his cell phone provider to figure out if he made those calls to Sydney and Sydney's all shooken up. And so she's staying over at 
uh, Tatum's house, which we learn Tatum is the younger sister of Deputy Dewey, which is fantastic. And like, I love Dewey so much, but he's just like, I'm so worried for him in this movie throughout. And also their dynamic, his and Tatum's dynamic is so funny because he's fully the deputy. He's an adult with a like a literal like law enforcement job and she just still treats him like my idiotic older brother vibes and it's so funny absolutely steps on him like there was one scene where he was like he was escorting them out of the police station um to like avoid all of the news reporters after sydney like went to the police thinking that billy you know might have been ghost face like after seeing his cell phone drop out and she just goes don't touch me he's like that's my boss and i was like <laughs> it's just like such like sibling sibling energy like oh and then she like snaps back of like no your boss is the janitor whatever and it's just oh so- yeah yeah you're you're the janitor's your supervisor or whatever yeah <laughs> dewey means so well but he's just like trying so hard he just isn't all there you know it's so good but yeah, then we have the confrontation with Gil Weathers where she gets a like, good old black eye from Sydney. Powerhouse move. But then uh, when she's staying over at Tatum's, icing her hand, there's a phone call for her. She answers it. It's the killer again, stalking her and terrorizing her kind of thing. And it's very traumatizing if you think about it. These people who seem to know you too well, but you have no idea who they are. And they are clearly a threat because they have the intent to hurt you. And and it's just, it's hilarious, like, after he hangs up and Sydney's all distraught, like, Dewey comes out, because Dewey just went to lay down and clearly passed out like a rock, and he's sprinting out of bed with a gun in hand. (laughs) And I'm like, I am so fearful of a gun mishandling with this man. And they had all walked out of the room, and then I just loved that he, like, like tried to walk into the empty room like a cool person like just for himself like no one was in there and he picks up the phone and he just goes hello and i was like (laughs) it was just a very very good comedic timing yeah so the next day we're back we're kind of back at school billy's released because phone records showed that he didn't call sydney so he's clear but like sydney's of course confused and conflicted because she's still dealing with the grief and trauma of seeing her mother killed because she was we we kind of learned that she was very nearby when her mother was killed if not witnessed her mother being killed and so she has a lot of intimacy issues understandably knowing what i know because i've seen this movie should we just spoil the killers right now because of just the manipulation that goes on throughout the movie i mean i guess just don't listen like i don't know my my vibe is like if you're gonna listen to a movie podcast like maybe I don't know. Watch the movie. We tell you ahead of time what we're gonna talk about, so it's it's hard. So uh, Chandler is about to give the spoiler to this film. If you don't want to know it, pause here, go watch the movie, and come back. So Sydney runs into Billy Loomis back at school, and it's awkward because she's conflicted because she thought he's the killer, and and little do, does she know he is the killer, one of two killers. And so he does a lot of weird manipulation because they've been in a relationship for like over a year and he's telling her to get over her mother's death. And he relates it to like his mom abandoning him. And she's like, no, no, my mom was murdered. Like, that's not the same thing. He's very manipulative about it, kind of purposefully, because he 
he's being very nefarious because he's a killer and he wants to make her life a living hell out of revenge because her mom slept with his dad and that's what caused his mom to leave his dad. Fun, bullshit, pettiness. That's the motive. But also to be, you know, cool killers and get away with it all because they want movies made about themselves. Kind of. Not really. And it's it's weird. It's just funny. And just the, the fame aspect because clearly he's psychopathic and it's very clear at the end of the movie that yeah he's he's a psychopath and he hopes he gets fame for all this nonsense as well as revenge sydney gets targeted again in school and like it's kind of foreshadowed because when dewey's dropping tatum and sydney off he's like you'll be at school you'll be safe and that's been the common thing in a lot of these movies of of historically slashers like Killers usually don't go to school because there's too many people and teachers and stuff. School's a safe place. But this breaks that rule because the killer tries to get her, scares her more in the bathroom. And she she runs out and races out after dealing with gossiping bitches, talking about her and her mom kind of thing, which is, you know, hard emotionally to get through. Like, Nev Campbell does a great job of having such emotional depth with this character because you feel for her of, like... She is, through not even her own volition, talked about in the center of attention in the small town because of just the shit she has seen and dealt with. And she's just been the center of the news media cycle. And that's like a commentary in this movie about how the news likes to get involved in very dark and nefarious acts of violence and terrible things, all for viewership and sensationalism right there's a big commentary to be had about that throughout this movie which i which is very very cool to see school gets canceled for the rest of the day and for the rest of the week and then there's a city curfew for nine o'clock at night kind of thing because you know the police have no idea who these killers are and they're also trying to find sydney's dad He's gone missing. They can't find him at the hotel. So there's suspicion that like maybe he might be the killer. But I've already spoiled who the killer is. One of them, at least. I'll, I'll leave the second one till the, till the end because that was a good twist at the end, I feel like. So everyone decides, hey, we're going to go to Stu's place for a party, you know, before curfew. But meanwhile, Randy's at the video store doing a shift and he's talking about how everyone's a suspect kind of thing and it's really good because that plays with you as the audience of like trying to figure out who the killer is like even he is and like to him billy's a big red flag and he's like talking to Stu about it and then billy just shows up behind him creepily and it's like oh 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 shit oh shit and billy's like well what about you randy maybe you're just a sick fuck and you just lost a few screws and you wanted to be your own character in one of your own movies and randy's like you're right you're right man you're right billy it could be me it could be me like randy is just like anything's possible (laughs) i loved randy randy was my he was my favorite character in this whole thing (laughs) so yeah they end up all going to Stu's party and and we're like halfway through this movie because the rest of the movie is at Stu's house the last 45 minutes of this movie is at Stu's house and it's intense how much happens there and and reading and watching interviews about the production and stuff and like interviews even with Wes Craven being like it was hard at times Wes was struggling with his uh, cinematographer Mark Irwin 
because they were using an anamorphic lens on the camera, which neither of them have experience of using. And it's just this way of what they film compresses it on a certain size film strip. So when it's reprojected out, uh, it does the wider screen size for movie theaters, like that widescreen format. But the way it's captured on film is more squarish. So it's just this like clever physics thing. But there's a lot of like technique with it and the specifically the focus puller that uh Irwin hired wasn't very good at his job so like editing the movie like a lot of shots were unusable because people weren't in focus and like you get that like uh fishbowl lens kind of feel sometimes with some of the shots in the movie which like looking back at that and having that knowledge I love the style of it and just the commitment to be like fuck it because I think it adds to the uniqueness of this movie personally even though it's arguably like not ideal or whatever because you get this like weird morphing effect on the edges sometimes in some shots or like weird lens like light flares from police lights and stuff like that i think it's really cool and you know stylized personally because that's what makes this movie stick out to me so much and combined with the unique soundtrack and i can't forget the principal scene because there's dumb kids running around because they found the Halloween costume of the ghost face kind of thing, and so they're playing pranks and shit. So the principal's... I just... This scene's so good. principal's got these two troublemakers in his office, and he's yelling at them, and he's taking off the ghost face mask, and he's cutting them with these giant-ass pair of scissors, and he's suspending them, because he's like, fuck you guys. You guys are some dumb-ass kids who clearly don't give a fuck about other people. You're... You're expelled from my school. Get the fuck out. And they're like, you can't do that. It was just a prank, bro. And he's just like, you know what? That's not enough punishment. And he gets like vindictive. And he's just like, I should just slice and dice you. And it's like putting scissors against their chest. And it's terrifying. And you're like, is he the killer? Which we should mention is Henry Winkler. And then not even five minutes later, he gets murked. He's, he's gone. He gets killed by the killers. <laughs> but then also there's a nod to Freddy Krueger, the janitor in the hallway when he's just like, he he yells in the hallway because like something's making noise, and he's like, "Who the fuck is that, you bastard?" And the janitor's out there mopping. He's wearing the Freddy Krueger sweater. So there's a lot of good references to like you know the greats of slashers. But yeah, we're at this fucking Stu's house for the rest of the movie, and they filmed at this house for over three weeks every night. So like that's intense because they're in the dead of night. I was reading that the crew made I Survived Scene 118 shirts that they all wore because that was this, like, shot, basically. And it was exhausting because it was a lot of, like, doing the same scene over and over again, even though it's, like, everyone's acting really well. And it's not not necessarily always the issue of, like, Wes needed a different take from an actor. It's more like, we're not sure we got the good enough shot from that and we need to do that again. And it's just like frustrating, you know, to feel like like that's the issue. But yeah, so the so party's going on and Dewey drops off Tatum and Sydney there. But then Dewey rendezvous with Gail Weathers. And so he brings Gail to the party so Gail can essentially, you know, being a little nefarious and, you know, journalistic plants a camera, a wireless camera, which is, you know, high tech in the 90s, by the way. Oh, yeah, that was that was like the peak. And, you know, she's kind of like half seducing Dewey, you know, using him more, but like ends up falling for him, kind of. I don't know. It's kind of ambiguous at the end. Yeah. 
they do make out. But it leads to him finding Sydney's dad's car has been abandoned. And then he's like, oh, fuck, I have to get back to the house because then he realizes something is severely wrong. And, they're, and they, they only started making out because they had to dive out of the way of cars because when curfew started, a bunch of people left. But then like uh, phone calls started happening that they found the dead body of the principal and all the students were like, oh, let's go fucking see the body before everyone else gets there kind of thing. Yeah, so they leave drunk. They're all, they've all been drinking, so they all drunk drive over there. And also, this is after uh, Randy does his rules of horror to stay alive which is a pretty famous uh scene don't drink or do drugs no that's the second one. First ones don't have sex first one is you have to be a virgin to escape a horror movie or to like survive a horror movie don't drink or do drugs because you'll be you know you'll be at the top of the list to be killed next and never ever when leaving a room say you'll be right back and it's and it's like played off really well in the moment with like a, you know a bunch of drunk teenagers and stuff like that. And it's funny and it's great. It's really funny. Like Stu is the one that's like, "I'm gonna go get some beer. Anyone else want anything?" And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." He's like, "I'll be right back," jokingly, and like walks off. And then we don't see him. And we're like, "Where the fuck did Stu go?" So then everyone leaves. And so like Randy's quite wasted watching Halloween by himself on the TV with Jamie Lee Curtis, and he's like talking to the tv like she could hear him or something being like no jamie jamie don't look there jamie behind you behind you and it's it's so funny because the timing of it's like oh ghostface is behind randy now oh dang and it's you see um the guy in the news truck watching the feed but it's got a 30 second delay that he didn't realize he had on it so like everything's late and it's intense but also, I have to say before all this, because we set the rules of to survive a horror film, Sydney gets down and dirty with Billy in a very PG-13 way. Yes, they do. In that there's a cut scene and then <laughs> and then we're back as like he's putting on his shoes or something and she's just sitting on the edge of the bed. So they have sex, but it's also like juxtaposed with them watching Halloween and the sex scene in Halloween. Uh, before the that first chick is killed kind of thing. And it's really funny of the uh, the dichotomy of that, the juxtaposition of that. Oh, fuck. I totally forgot Tatum got killed. Sorry. Forgot this. Oh, yeah. Tatum got murdered for sure. She was the first one at the party. Yeah. Ghostface showed up and then she got stuck in the door, like the dog door of the garage door, like trying to escape him. And he just flipped a switch and she got her head rammed into the top of the house uh, and just like died. She was such a baller character. And she was cool. She was ride or die. She was like, the fuck is this? Because she was like sent to go get beer and she's like, what the fuck? Am I a beer wench? Like, what the fuck? But she's getting beer from the garage to you know restock up for the party or whatever when she gets confronted by ghostface she thinks it's i don't remember she thought it was randy or Stu or even billy because i think she was just like what the fuck people are gonna freak whatever get out of my way and then she makes the funny line of like oh you want to role play please mr killer don't kill me i want to be in the sequel and it's just so so good <laughs> yeah it was really good everything just goes off the rails because after when when Sydney and Billy are kind of like getting dressed after their 
in a very intimate moment. Sydney questions Billy about who his phone call was, his first phone call at the police station was for, and he's like, it was my dad. And she finds that kind of odd and like intrigues the rest of the audience, I feel like, too, because like his dad was there later because he is a lawyer. But Billy's like, no, he just didn't answer my phone call, but he answered the sheriff's. And Sydney's like, well, it would have been interesting if like you called me to throw off suspicion. And that sets these like weird gears spinning. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the killer comes in and stabs Billy. And Sydney freaks out. And then there's this whole chase scene. So we think Billy's not the killer at all. And then it's just this crazy, like, back and forth. And camera guy, Kenny, he gets killed. Gail almost gets killed in a, after crashing the news van, trying to outrun the killer. While Sydney's trying to get help the whole entire time and, like, sprinting. And then that's because, like, all this is, like, happening almost at the same time. It starts clicking in your brain that, like, maybe there's more than one killer because this is a lot for one dude. And that's when we do get the review. Yeah, we find out after we like feel like we've lost Dewey's made it back to the house. He's investigating, and he can't find anyone. And he's looking. He's looking for Sydney's dad. He ends up getting stabbed in the back. And Sydney sees this as he's racing back to the house, and it's very tragic. And you think everyone thinks he's dead. And then she runs into Stu and Randy, and they're like, "Sydney, Sydney, give me the gun," because Sydney got got a gun from Dewey. She's like fuck both of you and locks them out of the house like if like anyone would i would do that like yeah yeah exactly smart choice smart choice just like don't know who to trust billy like crashes down the stairs with stab his stab wounds after she locks them out and and he grabs the gun from her and he's like we're gonna get out of here and because she's distraught she doesn't know who to trust anymore and then honestly thinks billy got stabbed and doesn't understand how he's still alive understandably and then he opens the door. Randy gets in. Stu's gone again. We're like, where the hell does Stu go? And then Randy's like, man, it's, it's Stu, man. He's the killer, man. It's crazy. And Billy's like, ha, hi. And he gets this evil smile. And you just are like, oh, shit. And he shoots Randy. And then Sydney's like, no. And then we learn that it's both Billy and Stu are the killers. And, you know, Billy's doing it because of Sydney's mom and stuff. And he confesses that they killed her mom. And framed the guy, Cotton Weary. The guy that's... The, and they, like, intentionally did stuff to make Sydney think that it was him. So, like, it wasn't like she was just pulling random things out. It was like they, they planted evidence and, like, specifically made sure that, like, she saw them wearing a specific jacket like leaving the scene of the her mom's crime like all of that that sequence when they're like getting covered in blood because um they had a good old daddy locked up in a closet and they show him to sydney and they're like we're gonna frame your dad like your dad did this because you just lost it because hey it's midnight happy one year anniversary since your mom's death which is really dark and evil and Sydney's just like completely distraught, trying to figure out how to get out of the situation, but there's a gun involved. So it's really hard to get out of a situation when there's a gun involved. And then she just watches these two fucking psychos framing the situation by stabbing each other a few times to make it realistic for the police so they could be like the final survivors of the whole situation. And it's and it's so good to see I, f- I forgot to mention this, like Matthew Lillard is here as Stu, and he is 
god, man. He is a god actor. I love He's him. so good. For those who might not know, that's Shaggy from the live-action Scooby-Doo movies. And voice acts most of him in, uh, since the original voice actor of Shaggy passed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's also going to be in the new Five Nights at Freddy's movie, which is exciting. There's so many good like dialogue, half of which is... Some of which is improv because of just the situation of filming because they're exhausted because they had to do the sequence and being covered in blood so much. Like, they had to re keep covering the same costumes and so much fake blood. And it's like got the points for like Billy, who's played by Skeet Ulrich. So it'd be Skeet and Matthew and uh, Nev, like in different corners, and they're just covered in all this blood. And like Matthew Lillard, like, remembers like playing with it in his hands because it's just like always covered in it losing his mind essentially and exhausted for like consistently giving out the same chaotic energy every time there's just so much like good like subtle improv that happens because mistakes have happened he put the gun down and then they lost the gun and it turns out gail came back but she doesn't know how to use a gun and the safety was on and so she gets you know beat up but then because of that distraction Sydney and her dad escape and so the tables kind of turn which is kind of you know amazing and so cool where like Sydney's kind of half torturing them because she's using the same voice box that they were using for the voice ghost face against them and calling them on the phone and torturing them but like Stu is like literally bleeding out and he's not feeling good anymore because of the loss of blood because you know arguably Billy went too far Billy's on the phone with Sydney. He's trying to find her and he throws the phone. And this was like a, a bit of a goof on set where like it hits Stu and it wasn't supposed to because it got stuck to his hand because of all the fake blood and the long hours and stuff because of the trajectory of it got off. And so Matthew Lillard has the brilliant improv line of like, you dick, you hit me with a phone. And it's just so perfect because it just adds to like the realism of like, this is just fucking a bunch of dumbass teenagers trying to be something they're not you know and it's so good but sydney manages to kill Stu by throwing a tv on his head which is so poetic gail comes back to consciousness thinking she got knocked out and she kills billy but then randy comes back awake and scares the shit out of everyone honestly because we all thought randy was a goner after being shot in the shoulder but it's just a shoulder shot it's fine he's like sorry sorry i just i didn't mean to scare anyone but like Gotta make sure he's dead. And this is where, like, you know, shoot him in the head comes from, you know, for, for killers. And, like, they always come back. So they make sure Billy's dead. So, like, these two guys are dead, dead. And that and the movie just kind of ends there. And we just kind of zoom out, like, once the dawn breaks. And we find, like, Randy survived. Sydney survived, of course. Gail survived. And luckily, Dewey survived. Yay! Which was also up in the air because they didn't know how successful this movie might be. But once they did a test audience screening and people loved it, they inserted the scene where Dewey survived because they had the chance of just killing as many people as possible in the end edit, which is really interesting. But yeah, that's essentially a lot of Scream in a nutshell. I mean, the other fun trivia, one of the really brilliant dialogue moments when Billy and Stu are kind of like, you know, showing all their cards and foiling their whole plan to Sydney, because Sydney's like, makes a comment about movies making them psychos kind of thing. And Billy's like, no, movies didn't make us psychos. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. And it's just like so accurate. That was a really good line. Yeah, 100%.
No, I liked it. It was definitely fun watching it, the whole thing in sequence. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, and also, when they finally finished all of the filming at Stu's house, the cast collectively threw all of their wardrobe into a pile and burned it. Wait, that's crazy. Yeah, they were they were done. I mean, I would be too. That sounds exhausting. But yeah, that's 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 Scream. It's it has spawned. So there's the uh, original trilogy. Then there's Scream Four, which was kind of a meta play on a reboot that I think Wes Craven also directed. But it it wasn't as successful. There was also an MTV series of Scream, which is very different altogether. And even season three doesn't have any of the same characters as season one and two. And it's like its own anthology thing. But then Wes Craven has passed away, sadly. He was in the process of trying to do a new Nightmare on Elm Street before he died. And that's been on hold since. But we've had these... This new trilogy of Scream movies, Scream 5, 6, 7, they do have a bunch of these characters from the original trilogy kind of come back that have survived, but it's also like a uh, next generation, and it and it kind of also plays around with like what's happened since generationally with horror and does a lot of the meta stuff too. I haven't been too much of a fan of it, but I, I think it deserves a rewatch on my part to dive deeper into it. It's just hard when, like, this movie is so uniquely good in its own right. Like, too good to be this good, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. We'll totally jumping ship over to a, a much different vibe of movie. Uh, we have Beetlejuice from 1988, which was directed by Tim Burton. And it had three different writers, um, three different main writers, Michael McDowell, Larry Wilson, and Warren Skarin. Our main actor in this is Michael fucking Keaton, dude. He is everything. Off the gate, I think it's important to note that 90% of his dialogue was improv which if you watch this at all makes complete sense just in the moment but also just makes you go holy shit he's he's so good at just improving and also that this is his favorite film that he's like been a part of so instead of kind of going through the whole whole plot of beetlejuice i think this is another film where there's like key kind of just like motifs and like genres that just like add to everything as a whole. Uh, I would also be remiss if as theater people, I did not alert the public that there is a Beetlejuice the musical, which is truly phenomenal. You should listen to the soundtrack. Uh, it's also on tour right now. You can go see it on tour. But I would uh, 100% stand by the fact that it keeps the just entire vibe and like authenticity of the original like film, um, like constantly having the fourth wall being broken and just like kind of the same with what we're talking about scream in a way like or poking fun at different like tropes and things like that also god so winona Ryder is our gothy teen main character in this as well i'm obsessed uh, i love her so much um and this was like in the prime of these roles like she she plays lydia in this movie you know this was like around the heather's release um, as well, like, you know, very similar vibes of, of her characters. So there is right off the bat, we meet these two characters. We have Barbara and Adam, and they are 
just like your plain white bread, not even toasted, like couple who like are into Pottery Barn and like all of that kind of stuff. They like take this vacation that is just them staying at home. So I was like, I relate to that. Barbara and Adam are played by Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin, respectively. This is honestly, I mean, we also have Glenn Shaddix, Catherine O'Hara. Like, this is a very star-studded, Jeffrey Jones, like, very star-studded cast. They are being, like, told that they should, like, sell this house. And they're like, no, like, we're good. And they they go to, like, head out of town and they, like, basically swerve off the road because they go to hit this dog and they drown in a river. So this is literally much like the scream had a bunch of crazy in the first like 15 minutes. Beetlejuice also has a bunch of crazy in the first 15 minutes because our main characters die and we're like, hello. And they are completely unaware of the fact that they have died. So they like get, they like climb out of the river, get back in the car, like get back to the house, like completely unaware that they, that they have drowned. And he's like, they, they are like, wait, how did we like get back here so fast? So he's like, oh, okay. Like let's, let's like retrace our steps. And then like he steps out and all of a sudden he's on like a different planet. There's like these black and white sandworms everywhere. And he's like, they're, they're geeking again, just these white bread people just trying to co- understand the fact that they're dead, but have no idea that they've died. It's, it's this whole thing. And, and he gets back to the house and Barbara was like, oh my God, you've been gone for hours. And he had no idea. And there's a handbook on the table that's called the handbook for the recently deceased which is like become the famous like object basically from this movie one of them i should say anyway time in this movie is just very like fast and also non-existent at the same time so like almost immediately their house gets sold it gets sold to this family called the deetses and that's where we meet uh, Lydia, who is played by uh, Winona Ryder. And we find out that Lydia's mom has died. And Lydia, like, hasn't necessarily been able to process that death herself yet. But her dad has just kind of, like, moved on very quickly and, like, doesn't, like, talk about her mom very much or, or anything like that. And they even, he even has this woman uh, whose name is Delia, and that's uh, Catherine O'Hara. She's just hilarious because she's like a total, I don't know, what is the word I'm looking for? Like, like hippie, but like the kind of like, like, I don't know, spiritual, I'm like, is conned by her like guru whose name is Otho. Like it's, it's just weird. Um, and, (laughs) and so they like get this place because they, they are tired of like the New York city crazy they they get this guy Otho to like come in and like make the house more livable all this stuff and Adam and Barbara meanwhile are like who the fuck are these people in our house and they're like um excuse me like where are you taking our things and like who are you and like what's happening and it's just like very funny and they 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 finally like realize that they are dead and so they're like oh okay so like let's try to like scare the people out of here but they can't like like one of the things in this handbook is like living people can't see like dead people and so they like nothing nothing happens like they can't they can't see anything so they're like dang this really sucks so they like go to the they go to the attic to just like chill and i'm just like wow like if my girlfriend and i just randomly died 
we would probably also be so confused about like if we were dead and then also just resort to being like all right guess we'll just like go hang out in the attic like i <laughs> anyway so lydia is is trying to explore the house and like all this stuff and like it's very clear that she is like the black sheep right like her dad's in a suit delia's this kind of like crystal woman and and delia's in or and lydia's in full like gothic attire like clearly doing the teenager like i'm mourning don't talk to me like sort of thing and adam and barbara prevent her from getting into the attic like next thing they know all of a sudden the tv in the attic comes on and we get introduced to our character Beetlejuice, and it is a full-on thing like late night 2 a.m mattress ad cut type thing that like comes up and he he's like trying to sell himself as someone who's able to scare the living so they are barbara and adam are obviously very interested in this they are like okay so maybe we should like read this handbook that like we've gotten to like figure out what the hell is going on and it gives them instructions to like create a door to the afterlife so like that's something that comes back a couple different times is they're able to like do this and um just all sorts of really funky people are in this afterlife world like just it's it it, they're in a couple different scenes of us in the afterworld it's like dudes with shrunken heads who have pissed off like uh you know like magical beings or like a football team that like got into a a bus accident and like the whole football team died and like just stuff like that and so it's very much like poking fun at fun at death like this whole thing what i like about this movie again especially recently as somebody who's just been experiencing a lot of grief surrounding like the passing of people it is such a like gallows humor movie uh about like how to just deal with those really large emotions and i think it does a really great job at poking fun at a lot of just the absurdness surrounding it all i want to talk more about like actual beetlejuice so we'll like like there's i don't know there's stuff that happens in between like adam and barbara basically like get back to the house and they try again to scare charles and delia by like putting sheets over themselves because they're like well if they can't see us they'll see the sheets that also failed and but lydia we find out can see adam and barbara which is like super weird and not supposed to be able to be like the case and she also reveals that she found their handbook it it said that people uh it's a quote live people ignore the strange and unusual and she considered herself to be strange and unusual and so like she kind of had this like bonding with adam and barbara of like no one sees me no one sees you guys like but we see each other and in that sense it was like this is like a very sweet connection that has started and so lydia does not want to be in this house at all so they basically the three of them start plotting how to like get them out of the house and lydia's like the place is haunted and like nobody believes her it's just sad and it's like just leads to more like dang this teenager is really being ignored in the wake of like losing her mom which is crazy that up in the attic one of the things that adam had was this like model of like a town because again they're just such plain simple people and barbara's like oh there's there's like a, a glowing light at the like graveyard portion of the town and so she goes to like check it out 
there is Beetlejuice. It's like, it's his grave. She says his name three times, which is the tagline of this movie is say it once, say it twice, but we dare you to say it three times. Because if you say Beetlejuice's name three times in a row, unbroken, uh, so it's like, that, that's something in the musical. It's like, say it three times in a row, it must be spoken unbroken. So you have to say it, like you can't say like Beetlejuice something else and then say it again. And he will summon, he will appear. So that happens and her and Adam get like whirlwinded, shrunk down tiny people into the model, basically like dig out Beetlejuice's body. And this guy is crazy. So first off, he's a demon. He's not just some like ghost. He's he's straight up from hell. I just cannot. This movie won an Oscar, as it should have, because it, it is Michael Keaton is insane. Like act absolutely insane. The abrupt back and forth that Beetlejuice has with himself and like just he's a madman. He's like, there's like 12 different personalities that are all him living in the same body that he just bounces between, between every single line. And so to also know that he ad-libbed so much of this, I'm like, and that, that is insane acting chops. They enlist his help and like, they immediately regret it because they, they can tell that he's uh, crazy. And also he's like trying to be very sexual with them. And again, they're just like, not that's not their thing at all and he and he's just out here like all of the seven deadly sins so there's a there's a dinner party that um lydia's dad's like new girlfriend delia throws they all wind up like the ghosts wind up possessing the the people and they sing the banana boat song if, if, if you should look it up and so something i found out was apparently Tim Burton was very reluctant to put that scene in because he didn't know if people were going to find it funny. And he was like, I have, I like, I don't know how this is going to play out. And then the movie did so well. And it wound up being like one of the most iconic scenes that people remember from this movie and that they like loved it. And I was like, wow, how interesting that he was like, I don't know if this is funny. Like, should we do this? Because amongst them possessing the humans to like sing this song and dance around, they're also like possessing, like throwing around all of the food. Like there's a, a full roast pig at one point that like starts talking like, so they they are like, oh, finally, like we've scared them out of this house. And actually the opposite has happened. Like they they have added more interest to this housing property because everyone loves a haunted house. That is unfortunate. Basically, we we wind up with Lydia just being devastated. Like they uh or she was like this failed like what is there left to do obviously adam and barbara feel terrible because they were trying to help her but also they're coping with the loss of their mortality at this point let's see i'm trying to think like because i've i've honestly i have listened to the musical more than i've watched <laughs> the movie lately which says something and their progressions are slightly different so i'm trying to make sure i'm not like jumping out of order right after the dinner party the the, the parents want to meet the ghosts kind of thing but they're like no we don't want to talk to you but after that beetlejuice takes it upon himself to try to scare them out and it like it freaks lydia out too and she thinks it's it's barbara and adam doing this and she feels betrayed by that and how hence has this like breaking of feeling utterly and ultimately alone in this world that's right thank you and so she's she's feeling so alone after all of this that she's actually like driven to suicide and writes a letter and she 
goes up to the attic to say goodbye to Barbara and Adam, though, before like actually following through with anything. And that is where Lydia meets Beetlejuice. And their quips are so funny. I love all of the dialogue between Lydia and Beetlejuice. It is just so well done because she really is like, she is a smart teenager and he is just a dumb, crazy demon. And so there's like- He's a horn dog. Yeah, yeah. There's like so much power dynamic back and forth there that's so funny. He tells her like, like, I can help you find Adam and Barbara. You just have to say my name. Like, say my name three times and we're good. And she's almost tricked into saying it, but she realizes that Beetlejuice was actually the one who did all of the scaring and, like, freaked her out and not Adam and Barbara. And so she, like, gets her wits about her. And it's at that time that Adam and Barbara, like, show up, like, just in time and explain to her, like, what could have just happened and everything. And so she like confides in them, like, I want to die. <laughs> and they they talk her out of that, basically, like, from a supportive standpoint. They're like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna try to scare like the family anymore, like you guys can can stay here, whatever. It is at that time that Otho and Lydia's dad, like, come into the attic and everybody just kind of hides. Char- Charles is the name of Lydia's dad. Uh, he basically is like bringing in a bunch of like these real estate guests and like business associates to like see the hauntedness. He's like, Lydia, come on, make your ghost friends like show up again. And she's like, no, absolutely not. And then Otho comes in and is like, oh, I got this. Like I can make this happen. So he uses the handbook and Adam and Barbara's wedding clothes and basically does this crazy seance scene that is just so over the top and dumb. And it, it, it makes Barbara and Adam appear for everybody. Because of that, though, they show up as like decaying corpses and not as like these perfectly intact, like ghostly figures that we've seen the whole time. That causes Lydia to absolutely freak out and she begs Beetlejuice for help and he agrees except that he she has to agree to marry him she agrees and that's like saves the Maitlands basically because they're like they are actively decaying so they show up as decaying corpses but they are like crumbling because of this seance and so that's why she freaked out was like Adam and Barbara were gonna like disintegrate basically Beetlejuice like holds her to that though and then because he's a demon, we get this whole like insane like house redecoration uh, scene where like everything is in this crazy gray, white, black scale. There's like these sandworm things everywhere. Everything turns into like a crazy demonic whirlwind version of itself. And it visually, it's so freaking cool. And, but in the moment, you're like, oh God. And Beetlejuice actually like the demon starts to show even more because he takes... Charles and Delia hostage. And he's like, you're going to be my witnesses to this wedding. What I actually like in the musical is that the song that's associated with this wedding is called Creepy Old Guy. And it's uh, because again, Lydia's a teenager and Beetlejuice is thousands of years old, but is also very much like a middle-aged man in terms of <laughs> like character, right? Uh, how he presents. And um, in the musical, it's it's really good because it's she's like conning him of like, oh, like my creepy old guy, I can't wait to marry him. And then they also have a quip of like how uh, I can't believe some cultures think this kind of thing's all right, which is very, uh, <laughs> I was like, damn, we love Broadway. 
And so Adam and Barbara are like, oh, fuck, like, what do we do? How do we get this wedding to stop? So Adam, Adam and Barbara try to like stop the wedding. They struggle with it because like Adam gets sent to the model. Um, Barbara gets sent to like the planet with these sandworms. And, but they wind up prevailing because Barbara comes in like riding the sandworm and devours uh, Beetlejuice. And therefore Lydia is saved. And there's also a whole like plot of them saying his name twice he gets eaten by the sandworm they finish saying his name and then like all is well and then like the happy ending is basically that adam and barbara and the deetses all just live in the house together and we get this very like beautiful moment with like lydia and her dad like reconnecting and him kind of like realizing like oh i have a daughter who needs me what a crazy concept and she's just like generally more happy she has these two friends now who are ghosts which fits her strange and unusual vibe and the movie ends with them all singing jump in line doing like a giant like dance party together and we get some flashbacks to like characters that we saw in the underworld and stuff as well uh which is very fun but yeah it's just a this would be another movie that i would be like just throw it on like just just put it on if you're at a party or something like because chances are like most people have seen this already because it is it definitely falls under like cult classic there's also something to be said about like the style of like the set design and of course it's scored by danny elfman so you just feel that vibe immediately of like all the other work he's done with tim burden it's like just right there and all the prosthetics and everything like all the and and cgi work like all of it is just insane like yeah it's it's really clever because it's very comedic but uh like especially like during like the uh trying to prevent the wedding adam's jaw gets popped off so he can't say any more words before he's sent into the model um and then like lydia's mouth becomes a zipper but she unzips it and then manages to say beetlejuice one more time and then he turns it into this like metal plate that's like screwed into her face and it's just it doesn't look dark at all like it's like like a saw movie or anything it's it's very comedical and it's very fun in that sense because it's it's ridiculous it's honestly it's all very ridiculous but it it's all very touching and has a purpose throughout you know so a fun fact about this is that um when disney bought the rights to this movie they cut out many scenes so there's a scene of like there's a sandworm and then there's another sandworm that comes out of that sandworm's like mouth that got cut for some reason. Yeah, I don't know if it was just like too much or something. Uh, in the original version, Adam and Barbara, when they're leaving the model, Beetlejuice kicks over a tree and it it falls, which is very funny because obviously it's a model and he curses. So he's just like, nice fucking model. Um, and then makes a honking sound while he like grabs at his dick. Um, and so that got cut. And then there is, act- yeah, they actually replaced it with an alternate take of the, the kicking over the tree where it's just like, he's just spits and then stares at Adam and Barbara. And then there were even more shots of Beetlejuice attacking the Dietzes with the snake those additional like attacking scenes got cut and then in the in the scene where they're in the afterlife and there's the receptionist which we didn't super go into but it was it was one of the underworld scenes that's just super funny she like her backstory is that she killed herself and so that backstory was uh removed as well i guess the version i have is closer to the original theatrical release so it's got some of that stuff still in there which is nice great 
Disney got to censor all my good stuff. Gosh. Right. Yeah. It, it was also like, it wasn't just Disney. Like some of this stuff has been filtered out over time. Like um, when it was released on VHS, it also didn't have that um, mod, that scene where he kicks over the tree. It That one had the the nice, the different one as well. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of care in the style of the movie because it feels like very 1950s B movie, you know, and just like, how much of it is like practically done and shot in camera from like the models and like the uh, just the the trickery to like make it all work so they don't don't have to like do a lot of work because this was on a very small budget if I remember reading that right so they had to like be very creative. I found out this really cool interview talking to a lot of the art design and set designers for for the production and they had months to get started which is very unheard of for film production because they're just waiting on casting or something like that. So they could just, they got a, like a super head start on like building a bunch of things and scouting for a town that they were going to use for this movie, which is really, really cool that they had like a lot of time to really come up with what this universe, this world kind of looked like and how like the afterlife looked and how like, you know, the the sand planet what the worms looked like and everything like that it's really cool and like a lot of that reminds me of like salvador dali inspiration art style as well very much so yeah um as well as this uh 1973 animated film called fantastic planet there's like a lot of like what i feel like is an inspiration from that and then of course my favorite a lot of the afterlife looks like a lot of german expressionism yeah <laughs> Yeah, what's cool in the uh, musical too is that the set design, there's a really great YouTube video if anybody wants to go watch it. It's like an educational video. I showed it in my classes when I would teach about the set design specifically for Beetlejuice, how they took in a lot of that that same like German expressionism, all of that, but they also incorporated um, things specific to Tim Burton. So for example, like the wallpaper in the living room is created out of um, one very specific, I think it was like a... Um, uh, an accessory that was on a very obscure character in one of his films. And that like became the wallpaper um, that like nobody would pick up on unless they happened to know that film happened to know that character's design, like sort of thing. So that's what I say. Like when I'm like the musical very much follows kind of the same design, like processes and like the overall just vibe is, is very, very similar um i did look it up they had a 15 million dollar budget estimated um and then they grossed about 74 million seven hundred thousand roughly well and, and half the budget definitely went to all of those prosthetics and and just the the making of the underworld and all of that yeah i think this is a this is a movie that's definitely like the plot is fine it's very creative but it's it's definitely a it's definitely a movie to watch for like the visuals and the the dialogue like the dialogue just is phenomenal like watch it for the dialogue it was it was funny i didn't realize how much like when they went to the afterlife for the first time like how much green lighting there is you don't see that in movies yes. anymore and i was just like at all my theater brain went off and i'm like green's a scary color yeah. <laughs> and it's just like it's used accurately so like i have to of course give my shout outs to some of my grad student friends Helen and Bill, because they're my lighting design friends. And we, we have have an inside joke about green lighting. It's great. It's a scary color. Nice. But yeah, it's a, it's a cute hour and a half movie. And uh, 
I 10 out of 10 recommend it. It's why it's my go-to. It's also a quick watch when you can't figure out what you're trying to watch. So, And also double watch this double feature with Batman, Michael Keaton's Batman, because you will never be more amazed in your life that this is the same actor. Like, honestly. There is a second movie, you know, in pre-production, right? That's happening. Uh, I don't know how I feel about it, but at the same time, I am excited. So I feel like we're all that way. I have my reasons. I'm not going to dive into it right now, but it's like, there's clearly like a big thing of Tim Burton working with Jenna Ortega a lot. And I don't know how exactly I feel about that personally, but is what it is, you know? I have Tim Burton feelings that are that are there that we don't need to get into right now. That's fair too. So, that's yeah, fair too. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's it for this week. Channel, you wanna tell everybody what our our next episode focuses on? Yeah. We are jumping back into breaking bad it's been a little bit it'll be it'll be good to get back into it because we're going to be watching episodes five through seven so just a three episode one i'll get some new information about uh what these weird flashback clips are in the beginning or not flashback clips but just preview clips sort of things and and figure out some more information teasers there we go yeah yeah, yeah. so i'm excited yeah that does it for us you've been listening to resonant reels uh we should be on all the podcast platforms please like subscribe follow us you know we got we got an instagram i think it's pretty fun it's been very halloweeny this month which is kind of fun it's very fun i like it but yeah uh i've been chandler that's been adam true facts (laughs) (laughs) and uh we'll catch you next week